I learned all of this by playing a video game called Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. So in that game, they recreated ancient Rome um, and uh, Vatican City brick by brick. Mm -hmm. And so when you went back to play it and you actually go there, it's like the same. And it's really cool. And they have a whole encyclopedia in the game. Like they did an amazing job. And the game has nothing to do with learning your way around Rome. The game is about assassinating people. But in order to be successful, you have to learn your environment, right? Because you're you're crawling up buildings and you're doing all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I realized, man, video games are such a, an amazing covert teaching mechanism. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Often on By All Means, we're talking to founders and CEOs who've made it. They've got their product in stores. They've landed the top leadership spot. They finally are making real money. But there's also a lot to be gained from talking to the next wave, the rising stars. Jules Porter is a name you're sure to hear more of, along with her company, Serif 7 Studios, a Minneapolis-based video game development studio on a mission to fight racism and build empathy by creating diverse characters and games that show the BIPOC community in a positive light. There's also a nonprofit arm to her business focused on teaching kids from disadvantaged communities to code. Jules is a military veteran and an attorney, but she actually shifted her focus to video games as a way to reach more people. Get this, three out of four people in the U.S. play video games today. That's an increase of 32 million people in just the last two years. Her bold ambition, her optimism, and her focus landed Jules on the Twin Cities Business Tech 20 list for 2021 and on the cover of the February-March issue of the magazine. Jules, how do you feel to be on the cover of a magazine? Man, it feels so fantastic and surreal and just amazing. I bet you can barely walk outside these days without having to sign autographs, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you were going outside, that is. What I do love is, is everybody uh, texting me, emailing me just to check in, to congratulate me. And just, you know, so I feel so loved and supported right now. And oh. so I so appreciate it. Well, yeah. that's really nice to hear. And we're really excited to, to have you on the list. We started the Tech 20 list three years ago. And the idea was to just kind of shine a light on all of the different, you know, innovation and tech advances happening in Minnesota from within large companies to startups like yours. So. That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into your new career and budding business in video gaming, I want to talk about how you got there. Paint a picture for us, if you will. Where did you grow up and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, man, I was born and raised here in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So this is my hometown and I love it very much. Um, man, you know, like any kid, I wanted to be a lot of things. I saw Jurassic Park and I wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I saw Dr. Mae Jameson. She's one of my biggest inspirations when she she was the first black woman to go up uh, in the outer space. Mm. And so I was so amazed by that. I was like, what? Black women can go to outer space? <laughs> I, I was sold. You know, and so I started learning everything I could about planets, about all sorts of things. Um, and I've always also been a lifelong gamer. Um, but really, my goal was I wanted to be an astronaut, um, you know, wow. and so, but I also knew that I always wanted to join the military because I have a big military family. My family's fought in every war since the Civil War. Amazing. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so I basically uh, went to high school at Egan High School, and then I went down to Florida a and University. So that's a historical black college or university um, down in Tallahassee, Florida. It's amazing. When the family rattlers were known for having the best band in all the land. Um, <laughs> and you, some of my greatest friends are, are from fam. Did you know you wanted to go to a historically black college? I did because both my parents. So my, my father went to South Carolina State University. His name is Philip Porter. My mother went to Jackson State University in Mississippi. Um, she was actually the first um, in her family to go to school. And not only did she go to um, Jackson State for her bachelor's, but also for a master's degree. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so my mom really set the bar high, you know, then uh, just a couple of years ago, she got her PhD. I was like, mom, you're supposed to stop so that the next generation <laughs> can actually surpass you. Right. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, I don't need just another set- five years in school. Yeah, she just keeps raising the bar. But I really appreciate uh, my parents. They really instilled in me a love for education, a passion for education. And growing up here in Minnesota, in addition to my own homework, uh, this is, you know, Black History Month, they also gave me Black History homework. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn about different things in Black history, different Black history figures. And then I had to present that uh, to my grandparents. So that's what made me a pretty good public speaker. Wow. Um, getting all that practice in. Very cool. Yeah. I'm guessing that Egan High School must have been just a little different than your college campus experience. Yeah, it was different living in Minneapolis and very, it's the reason why I definitely, you know, really wanted to go to an HBCU. Yes, because my parents went there, but also just being in Egan, I just felt kind of isolated and alone. Now, granted, there's a lot of amazing people who do live in Egan, um, but I, you know, but culturally I was just feeling a bit isolated. So it was really great to go to FAMU. Um, Mm -hmm. I learned a lot being there. Um, I joined uh, the Marine Corps, so I'm a Marine Corps veteran, and that was really cool. I went in as an engineer, um, then I guarded embassies. Um, it was a really fantastic job. I was overseas probably about well, the whole time except for uh, training, which was fantastic. Hmm. And I finished up my aeronautics degree there. So you could see that Dr. Mae Jamison inspiration. Amazing. So, <laughs> so at this point, are you still thinking you're headed to outer space? Yeah, I'm still thinking I'm headed to outer space. Like, I want to get, you know, I was my goal was to be, you know, transferred somewhere where I could start working alongside NASA or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, doing what I need to do in order to get into the space program. I was looking at going to um, the Naval Academy um, or the Citadel in South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, for a degree in astrophysics mm-hmm. was my goal. Um, but I ended up instead getting out of the Marine Corps after four years. Um, and then I worked in, lived in Houston and then Atlanta for a little while. Um, And I went to seminary, so I have a theology degree as well. So I finished my aeronautics and my theology degrees. I know. And then I, (laughs) and then actually like it was a bit of tragedy that, that led me to law school. It was the death of my, my grandmother, who I thought was just the smartest woman in the world, who knew everything about everything, Mm -hmm. who always wanted me to be a lawyer. And then it was the death of uh, Trayvon Martin that really struck me. Um, I have a younger brother who's a Yale graduate and he likes to wear hoodies. He likes to, you know, walk around and and do stuff. And I just felt, you know, so powerless. Like, what can I do if somebody, you know, stalks my brother while he's walking at night and and kills him? Hmm. Right. It's I I just saw a pattern where there was no justice for the families where the people who killed, you know, the black kid were able to raise four hundred thousand dollars, whereas the family is just left so distraught and the community is left distraught. Yeah. And I just, you know, and I watched this TED talk by Dr. Artika Tyner and she made this comment that the law is the language of power. And for me, that solidified it. You know, Hmm. feeling so powerless, I was like, yes, to have a little bit of power, to have some knowledge, to have some say, to be able to help hold people accountable um, was really important to me. And I did watch the the Trayvon Martin uh, trial as well, the trial of, I guess, George Zimmerman. and that was also a big factor. So I applied to law school. I got into the University of St. Thomas. So I came back home uh, for law school. And then, of course, we had the deaths of Jamar Clark. Um, we later had Philando Castile. Mm-hmm. But during my first year of law school in 2014, we also had the the big um, the aftermath of Ferguson mm-hmm. um, and Mike Brown. And we had the officer who killed Mike Brown. And I remember right before finals, uh, they decided not to indict that police officer. And later they released the grand jury testimony transcripts. And so I read the transcripts and I saw that that officer basically said that Mike Brown looked like a demon before he killed him. Hmm. And so to him and other people, I guess, agree with him that that justified him killing this teenager for jaywalking. Hmm. And that really struck me. I was like, what can I do? What can the law really do? We can provide consequences. We can help set policies, you know, but the issue if a person doesn't even see us as human in the first place. Right. There's something like in the heart that the law just can't reach, you know. And so how do we reach that in order to get people to, and build up some empathy there and just kind of get them to change maybe from the inside out and change a bit of the culture? And that led me looking to options beyond the law in order to get to that that point. So so you didn't I mean, you, you continued on with your law degree. I mean, you weren't yes. feeling you weren't giving up on the law, but you just felt no. like maybe it wasn't going to be fast enough or you, you, yeah, you be need able something to ex- more mm-hmm. okay you needed something more than the law like you need things in place to hold people accountable properly you need to be able to protect people's constitutional rights 
Um, but you also have to reach, you know, their heart. And that's just a place where, I don't know, since America was founded, that the law just seems that it hasn't reached mm-hmm. when it comes to how we can reconcile uh, some of our racial biases. So how did you go from those thoughts, which are really ambitious, really big, um, to video games? <laughs> so I am a lifelong gamer. So okay. I, I'm a big PlayStation fanatic. Yeah. What did um, you grow up playing? <laughs> What was your game? Oh, I grew up, oh, Mario, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, and then especially Super Mario Brothers 2. I know they changed her name to Princess Peach, but back then she was Princess Toadstool. <laughs> and she was like basically the first female character that I could play. And you mm-hmm. could jump and then she'd kind of float. You know, it was really cool. Oh, <laughs> uh, So I, I love Mario. And then uh, Tecmo Bowl it was a football game because I figured out the trick, which is if you run back towards your end zone as the quarterback, a whole other team was scripted to follow you. Mm. So then you just throw the ball over their team to your guy. You get a touchdown every time. You cracked so, the code. I cracked the code. I learned the limitations of the software and I exploited it to beat my <laughs> brothers every time. Every I was going to say, did you beat you beat your brothers? You were better than yes. them? Okay, I love, it. I love it. Yeah, no, I'm known. So it, I play, uh, have you ever heard of Madden? It's a football game. Oh, very much so. I have two boys in my house. There you go. Yeah, so I'm I'm undefeated in Madden. Uh-huh. Um, and I only play undefeated. in all Madden difficulty. I play everybody. Yeah. The, the trick is I only play the years that the Minnesota Vikings are really good. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I learned their playbook inside and out. I yeah, I've see. never been defeated. Amazing. And I've even learned that the max points are 255 points. And after you score 255 points, you can't score more. That's how bad I beat people in Madden. Wow. <laughs> competitive much? So were I'm you slightly competitive. Were you gaming even when you were in law school? Did you have time for that? Oh yeah, I set aside. I mean, I know law school is so much reading and so much writing. Um, but I always set aside at least thirty minutes a day to game. It was just kind of my way of relaxing. I mean, mm-hmm. I know some people play games. Yes, I'm sorta of competitive, but I don't really play um more, the more violent games. I like playing games that are story driven or where I can just kind of um, open box where I can just run around and kind of space out and just kind of get into the world for mm-hmm. a minute and then and then pop out. So it's, okay. just, it's very relaxing for me. So so you have this love of video games. You're in law yes. school. You're yeah. you're a, you're a veteran. You are thinking about racial justice, social justice issues, how you can actually make a difference. How does this all begin to come together? It all came together when I went to study abroad in Rome. So when I was in law school, I studied art law and international human rights in Rome. And it was my first time being in Rome. But as I went on the tours and I walked around, I realized that I knew exactly where I was. And I was like, how do I know all of this? Like I went into the cathedral and I was like, there's going to be a hidden chapel over there. There's going to be a stained glass window over here. And it means this. And it was true. It's so like I knew so much. And I was like, man, I learned all of this by playing a video game called Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. So in that game, they recreated ancient Rome um, and uh, Vatican City brick by brick. Mm -hmm. And so when you went back to play it and you actually go there, it's like the same. And it's really cool. And they have a whole encyclopedia in the game. Like they did an amazing job. And the game has nothing to do with learning your way around Rome. The game is about assassinating people. But in order to be successful, you have to learn your environment, right? Because you're you're crawling up buildings and you're doing all sorts of cool stuff. and so, yeah, that's when I realized, man, video games are such a, an amazing covert teaching mechanism. Mm. I didn't even realize that I was learning my way around ancient Rome when I was playing this game. But not only did I learn it, I remembered it. And when I went there, I still knew, you know, stuff from the game. And I was like, that's amazing. That um, is. And that kind of led me down the path towards forming Seraph 7 Studios, because I also already knew how to code. So I've been kind of you know, coding here and there since I was a little kid with DOS back in the day, mm-hmm. some Oregon Trail and stuff like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just kind of kept it up. Um, but then I just really kind of ramped it into, into full gear um, and then saw also like the development engines and, and choosing that for my game and stuff like that. So I just got really into it. And then at St. Thomas, they had a business idea competition um, at the School of Entrepreneurship. And I joined the competition to flesh out my idea. Was and that weird? Was that, well, congratulations, was that weird <laughs> for a law student to be joining uh, an entrepreneurship competition? <laughs> I was the only law student that year that uh, was a part of the competition. It definitely was uh, different. And and what, what was the exact idea? Was it Serif 7 Studios that you pitched? It or? was. Okay. So it was Serif 7 Studios. And what was um, the, what was kind of the mission statement for, for the, for the business at that point? 
See, at that point, I didn't really have a mission statement formed up. Now my mission statement is to empower compelling change both in life and in dreams. Hmm. Um, but at that time, I was really the, the, I, the competition was really about digging into the problem and really researching the problem and the issues um, and then presenting your solution, you know, and how that solution um, was uniquely suited uh, to solve the problem. And so for me, I really love that because it went beyond just, you know, I want to build empathy. There are actually like real world problems that I believe video games could solve. Like when I looked into why are, whenever I play video games with my nephew, there aren't any video game characters out there where he can see himself as a hero. So like whenever it was like a black male character, they were a gangster, a mobster. They always had some level of moral deficiency. Mm. And then there were some games I couldn't play with him because the women were so scantily clad that it just wasn't appropriate um, for a then 11 year old. Hmm. Um, and so and I was like, why is this? You know, and I saw the stats that about 80 percent of black youth play video games, yet only three percent of the protagonists look like us and they're not even good guys most of them are bad guys it's so rare to find a positive black male character and it's also rare to find a positive black female character there mm -hmm. was a study that was done by the houston chronicle and they found that in like the whole 50 years of the video game industry only 14 of the heroes have been black women um, and only two were fully clothed <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> yeah. you know and then the question was well why is this mm -hmm. right and then I saw that in the video game industry, only 3% of the workers um, are Black, Native, or Hispanic. Mm. Um, only 25% of the workers are women. Less than 5% of, of those women are uh, the actual programmers. And they don't even keep stats when it comes to, to the BIPOC folks in their C-suites because hmm. it's just so few. And I was like, well, that there you go. I mean, the decision makers, these are basically, you know, white men telling the story of, you know, African-Americans. And they have a specific lens that they see us in. Mm -hmm. And so in order for us to change that narrative and put more positive images out there, we really need um, BIPOC folks to be part of the creative side and just put our own imaginations and our own stories and our own ideas out there. So were, um, there you, was a, were you thinking about all of this while you were in Rome? Did, did, did you get this far <laughs> in the thinking? This came about when I was back when I was back in the States, when I was really fleshing out the idea for the business competition. Okay. And I was really looking at what is the problem, you know, and, and how many layers to this problem are there mm -hmm. and how many layers of this problem can my solution address? So your solution was to start your own video game company and start creating a, a new kind of video game with diverse heroes that actually wear clothes and in some cases even get older. I love that part of it. Yeah. But it couldn't just be that. Um, and so, you know, because I also have to address the fact that there's so few BIPOC people making games in the industry, so few women, mm -hmm. and addressing the reasons why. And so one of the reasons why is that, you know, a lot of Black students, especially here in Minnesota, I think the median income um, is $33,000 a year for a Black family of four, mm -hmm. about $27,000 a year for a Native family of four, and about $87,000 a year for a white family of four. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, BIPOC folks are going to schools uh, that have um, less resources, less access to advanced um, coursework, especially in STEM. So there, there's no like real robotics classes that they can take while they're in high school and stuff like that. So what I saw was, and that was a study by the Wilder Foundation that came out with why there was such a um, gap in achievement in STEM um, for students in the, in, the, in the state of Minnesota. And so what I found was like, okay, not only do I need to make these video games and put more positive images out there, but I also need to find a way to build up our students um, so that we can increase their STEM confidence and competency. Because mm. I think a lot of it goes with just mentorship. And just not being exposed to it. Like, even though we're playing a lot of video games, there's kind of some kind of block. Usually when people, when I talk to them about coding, I mean, they just like, they think it's just so difficult. They look at me, it's like, how did you have time to learn all that? It's so hard. It's like, not really. If you just take the time and you put the time into it to learn it, you can learn a programming language in about six months. You just have to put in the time and put in the work to learn it. Right. And so, and, and also overcoming your mental barrier of thinking that it's so hard. You have to think, I can do this. I got this. Um, and so that's what I want to give to these students. Um, so basically what I came up with is one, the video game company that puts out positive, positive BIPOC characters and just, you know, enhanced diversity and just shows a, a bigger, 
realm or wealth of our experiences, but also I need to have an applied advanced STEAM program where students can get a paycheck, earn high school credit, and earn some college credit. Now, were you thinking so about were you thinking about the education portion of that as as a give back, as as mentorship, or were you thinking that's actually going to be part of your business? Yeah, it's it's part of my business model. My my goal is just to create an army of change makers, right? To make Minnesota a hub for video game talent, you know, or just STEM talent when it comes to BIPOC folks. Because I also get sick of, and this is the same whether it's business or law. You have a lot of these, um, you know, hiring folks who are like, we would love to hire more BIPOC people. We just don't have any qualified BIPOC folks, you know, or talent pool for our position, right? Yeah. So just take away that excuse. Here nice. you go. And not only that, but you start building them up when they're students um, so that they're ready. Instead of trying to reach out to them in college, sometimes that can be a little too late because now their interests are somewhere else because they weren't exposed to, you know, different STEM topics early on. So that's a tall order. You're going to start creating like completely like industry transforming video games and you're going to train the next generation of coders. You you right. win this competition with your idea that did that give you a little bit of seed money or just the confidence to to actually start working on it? It gave me confidence and it also gave me a scholarship, okay. uh, which I appreciated. Yeah. So and that was the Fowler competition. So shout out to Mr. Ron Fowler. <laughs> right. That's awesome. So meanwhile, at this point, you still have to finish the law degree because you want to get that, yes. right? So so, yes. so you did that. And then at the same time, were you working on your business plan or, or what, what did you do to start making this a reality? Yeah, I was doing both. So I, I also went to business school. So I was a, a dual degree JD MBA student. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, that wasn't as fun as it. It probably sounds like it's not fun. It probably sounds like a lot of work. And it was definitely a lot of work. There were a lot of 16-hour days. Um, but I absolutely loved it. Very and yeah, fun. so, but I also saw it as not being um, different. I also saw it as, as being a compatible thing because it was all about social justice at the time. And I saw that when it comes to social justice, you know, we've been marching. We've been saying the same chants for generations right? I'm sick of doing that. We need to do something different. I understand that racism is this huge problem. It seems daunting. You know, it just, it seems overwhelming almost, but we have to try new things um, in order to reach folks and to show people that we as human beings, we have so much more alike than we, than we are different. And we all have so much to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the other part of it is I'm so sick of Black people, and especially Black women, or just maybe all women, not getting the credit for our intelligence that we really deserve. I think when it comes to black folks, there's just this emphasis on on our bodies, on our you know athletic frames or things like that. And our intellect is sometimes taken for granted. And we have to do so much just to show that we belong in this space and we belong in this room and we're worthy of credit and consideration. Did did that so. make you feel like you had to 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 work even harder? Like you needed to have all the degrees, and it wasn't enough just to run. Because some people might, yeah. you know, they sort of when they're when some entrepreneurs when they have the idea, they immediately drop out of school and go work on it. But, but oh, no, you, you didn't can't do, do that. that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Listen, I still have bills to pay. I still have things to do. But also, I mean, my goal isn't just. I have many different, I think, goals in life and things that I want to do in life. Mm -hmm. So like when I was studying for my theology degree, I came upon, you know, the story of Jeremiah. And it talked about how Jeremiah said that the word of God was like a fire shut up in his bones. And so that always sounded so powerful to me, but I really didn't fully understand what it meant until I went to law school. Right. And I was like, man, this really does feel like a fire just in my bones. I felt as though I found my calling. Like this is what I'm supposed to do. So I feel that fire when I'm working on the law, when I'm doing things, and also when I'm uh, working on my video game and working on developing the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Like, I just feel this this fire, and that's how I know that I'm doing the right thing. You are, But it's in both those areas. Right, right. You, um, so, so when you graduated from law school in 2018, you, you actually got a job. You were a law clerk. I was, yep. Um, so that was working for... Um, an amazing judge, Judge Taylor in Dakota <laughs> County. Uh <-huh. laughs> she was a former prosecutor. She's one of my mentors today. Like I, she's just so amazing. And I just love how kind and considerate she is. But yeah, working as a law clerk, that's one of the jobs that a lot of um, law students do 
right after law school as they're studying for the bar and they finish the bar for the first few years of their careers because it gets you so exposed to so many different areas of law and as well as being able to see so many lawyers in court, you read so many briefs, you help draft so many things. And I really enjoy that look because you're looking at it from the neutral aspects of law um, instead of looking at it as an advocate. So at um, any point, did you think maybe I should just go the law route? This is this is a, a it's a great career. It's respected. It could be lucrative. Or were you still noodling this Serif 7 Studios concept? Yeah, I was still trying to do both. And I'm and even today, I'm still doing both. And my thing is because. We, we do need more lawyers of color out there. We need more lawyers who are willing to help people, not only pro bono, but also low bono, because there's people who really need lawyers who have complex legal issues but can't afford an attorney and don't qualify for pro bono assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, my passion is really to help those folks. Um, but also, at the same time, I know that when it comes to the good that I can do in the community, that this video game idea is what can really do, I think, some of the most good for the community. Because it's not only, um, you know, putting out games and and doing all that for my own benefit, but it's also building up our youth and basically changing. So when I talked about those numbers earlier and I said a family of four, if they're black, their median income is about $33,000 a year. Entry-level video game programmer, entry-level is about Seventy-five to eighty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So in one year, just by teaching these kids these skills in high school, and this is without a college degree, they're able to learn what their families have been struggle struggling to make for the past two and a half years. Hmm. And that's real systems change and economics change. And especially if I can employ them after graduation, then I've kept these students. I kept their talent here in Minnesota, their tax dollars here in Minnesota to help build up our schools, their mentorship here in Minnesota, their passion here, um, and that's really the goal. And it's also not only to build them up so that I can hire them, which is what I would love to do, but perhaps maybe when they take the course on architecture, because you have to learn some architecture in order to make the buildings in the game, maybe they're just like, man, that was so much fun. And maybe they want to go into architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? When it comes to black women who are architects, it's like 0.003% of architects in the United States are black women. Yeah. Um, it's so just by exposing them to these different things, right? Maybe they want to work for 3M or maybe they want to, you know, do something like that. And sure. the goal also is to have relationships with some of these other companies so that they're giving these students interviews. Um, You're just opening up all the possibilities. So so yeah. in that in that year that you were doing your your law clerking in Dakota County, was it like clerking by day? coding your future video game by night or or what were you how did you how were you working yeah I felt I felt like Batman it's like I was (laughs) I was Bruce Wayne during the day out there doing my thing and then at night I just this huge monitor and I'm just like working away so so yeah many many tiring days did you (laughs) did you have an idea at this point for a specific game because I mean the concept is amazing, but then you've got to have a game. You as a gamer know, I mean, the game itself has got to be good if people are going to play it, right? Yeah, I actually came up with, I have my first eight game concepts already drafted up. Um, but the eight one of that them. I'm Eight of them, wow. yeah. Because <laughs> I dream, like I, I have really vivid dreams. So I have these amazing dreams, and then I write it down when I wake up. Uh, and it's really fun, and that's how I come up with a lot of my really cool superpowers for the characters or just different plot lines or from the weird things that I dream about. You dream in video games. I love it. I dream in video games. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I know you have one that is coming out this year, right? Tell us about that. So Ultimate Elder Battle Royale. And that's kind of the one you were talking about with the uh, the elders who have superpowers. Um, (laughs) It's like, you know, elders uh, in in Mortal Kombat. So it's kind of like they, they have their superpowers. They're over 80. (laughs) They're kind of retired. They have an underground fight club and they're still out there fighting bad guys. And it's funny. And so the goal is because sometimes people think when when black folks come out with movies or art that it's going to be, you know, sad or super heavy. So I want to do something that was really, really light and fun, but still brought diversity to the screen. Mm -hmm. So diversity is not only in the characters being, you know, different shades of, you know, uh, brown and whatever from all across the world. Um, but in also being from places that are underrepresented, like one of my superheroes is from Mississippi, you know, <laughs> another one is from uh, the Serengeti. So it's really cool. Um, and half of my roster are women, half are men. So the game will launch with 20 characters, all elders, 
and all just hilarious. So there'll be like weaponized walkers, <laughs> um, but also the ability to roundhouse kick somebody to the moon. It's just really fun. I love it. Know? Did this all come to you in a dream? <laughs> Some of it did. Some of the superpowers did. So yeah. have you built this game by yourself or do you have yes. a team now? That's, this is all you. I've been working on it by myself because one of the most biggest difficulties and I think the biggest barrier when it comes to um, black entrepreneurs and especially women entrepreneurs um, is funding and getting the funding that we need in order to get the team in place that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, I've been building a lot of this by myself. But what I like about that is it forced me to conquer so many fears that I had. Like before, my biggest fear was, oh, I don't know how to draw. I'm not an artist, right? But that's like pen and paper. As Mm -hmm. soon as I started learning 3D modeling on the computer, I picked it up like that. Hmm. Um, And so it just helped me push through, seeing that I have, if if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. So Jules, you better learn how to do it. You better get this together. Right. Um, And that's what I do. Speaking of, of funding and having that support, you went from that law clerking job to becoming a Finnovation Fellow. Um, We actually had the founder of Finnovation Lab on the show uh, a while back. Yeah, got to go look up that. She's amazing. She is. Yeah, we had to turn the sound down because she is so loud and just she's so (laughs) (laughs) she's so excited about helping entrepreneurs. So did was this the point at which I mean, did you feel like you were making a conscious decision, like stepping off the law track and saying, "Okay, I'm going to fully embrace entrepreneurship. Yeah, when I saw how much um, time goes into um, the law and being a lawyer into that specific job, I realized that if I really wanted to get my game out before five years from now, um, that I really needed to take some time to put into not only building up my game, but just building up my company mm-hmm. and making sure the areas that I wasn't so confident in of, of business, even though I do have an MBA, but in practice, that I built those areas up and got the mentorship that I needed to help push me along that that pathway. And the Finnovation Fellowship was was amazing. Jackie's amazing. She really um, is. She so really is. So is and Katrina. Yeah. <laughs> the whole team over there. So what? So when you're a Finnovation Fellow, what did that do? Did it give you money or mentorship or, or how did it work for you? All of the above. So you get um, a stipend of about for the time that you're there to help pay for your living expenses because you're expected your full-time job to be to work on your company and developing your company, meeting with your mentors, um, attending the curriculum sessions, um, reading different articles and things on business. So basically my full-time job now was just being able, I felt like I was freed up Mm -hmm. to fully focus on my company. That must have Um, just felt luxurious after all the multitasking you did for so many years in school. I so appreciated it. I so appreciate it. But I will tell you that, you know, Connie didn't give us much time to chill. Okay. <laughs> Connie Rutledge, she she stayed on us. She kept us moving forward, pushing us, pushing ourselves. And um, I really felt like I learned a tremendous amount in that nine months as a Finnovation Fellow. I'd recommend it to anybody who's, you know, wanting that time to really work on their company um, that has a good social uh, purpose. Where was Sever- Serif 7 Studios at when you left Finnovation Lab? So when I left Innovation Lab, so during that time, before I started, I did not know how to do any 3D modeling. I did not know how to do any animation. Uh, when I left, 3D modeling, animation in the bag. <laughs> um, financial statements um, were nice and, and put together. Um, executive summaries, um, different um, versions of my business plan. So I had like a five-page version, 10-page version, and then a big 40-page version, plus a two-page summary. So that was just good to have these different things, you know, for different situations, plus my financials in good shape. Um, I was able to learn a little bit about HR. What am I going to need when I'm ready to hire my first employees? Um, Also just resources um, on like, uh, even though I'm a lawyer, right, there's all these different types of law. So it was good that they had some lawyers come in and just talk to us about different uh, formations, different issues to look out for. Uh, They also had a financial team come out, again, help us brush up our financials, but also putting together like a financial packet. So more than just putting together, you know, your cash flow projections, Mm -hmm. um, just kind of a more robust way of explaining your finances. And for me, that's what I was most uncomfortable with when I walked in. Um, And I left out very comfortable and and, so uh, so at this point, I mean, you're getting close to to finishing this first game, the, the Elder Battle Royale. How how difficult is it to get distribution for a video game? There's a lot of competition out there. 
<laughs> I almost feel like for me that's the easy part. Really? Uh, because my game is released on console, so PlayStation, Nintendo, and Xbox, and it's the least saturated part of the market. Hmm. So when you think about it, like you know, thousands of games are released what every every week on mobile. Mm-hmm. You maybe get a thousand games released every year on computers, but every year on PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo, you have about sixty games that are released. Um, the thing is, though, it takes a lot longer to develop games for the for console market um, because of the expectations of the consumer. So your um, your graphical quality needs to be at a certain level. You need to have a certain you know amount of content. So kind of what people expect is they expect at least an hour of gameplay for every dollar that your game costs. So wow. games generally cost sixty bucks, and they expect at least sixty hours of gameplay, which is what's um, delivered. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the biggest bang for your buck. When you think about it, you go to the movies. And it's like 15 bucks a ticket for two hours. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess. But how <laughs> how do you I mean, how do you market it? Like we all, you know, I've heard of Madden and I, you know, barely know anything <laughs> about video games. How are people going to find the game? Yeah. So what's great about it is that each of these, each of the consoles, PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, have their own online marketplaces mm-hmm. um, and they also have their own programs for independent developers so you basically need to like sign up for their programs they send you like a dev kit um, but it, you're also able then to self-publish if you want to or you can get a publisher or you could see if they will help you publish your games but they will help you with some marketing and promotions even if they're not your publisher mm. so they have like featured deals all the time they have like new games coming out um, and they can push your game to the forefront on many of these things and these they probably have different cells at least, I don't know, every three weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really fantastic. So you're able to get in front of a huge audience just by that. But of course, you should do more than that when it comes to marketing. Um, but they don't just leave you out there to dry. They do actually push your game and promote it, even though they could be seen as a competitor because they all publish their own first party games is what they're called. But they do help third party games because, of course, they get a percentage of every sale. Um, that's sold on their platform. Are you still working on some of those out 60 hours of design? I can't even imagine. Are you still working <laughs> on it or is it ready to go? Yeah, no, I'm still working on it. Okay. Uh, but the thing with, with, with starting with the fighting game is a little bit easier. It's not as daunting, especially working on it by myself. And that's because, um, so what it kind of takes to make a full level of the game, um, it's like a lot of bad guys, you know, this whole like level design. Sometimes a level can take a whole hour or more than an hour for you to get from you know, start to finish of that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but fighting games are different. So for fighting games, you need a few different arenas um, and you need a few different unique characters, right? And so basically the work that it takes to make a fighting game is about the work that it takes to make a single level um, of like a uh, of a more linear type game. Interesting. Um, okay. So instead of coming out with a game that has multiple levels, I'm able to do something that's a bit easier for me to do for my first game, especially working on it right now by myself Mm -hmm. um, and still making it good and replayable. Right. And I'm sure you have high standards being the the gamer that you are. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, I I know you're also moving on this this mentorship education piece. Uh, What does that look like? So it's great. So I have an education team and they're a team of retired uh, administrators here from the state of Minnesota. Um, and so they specialize in like developing curriculum that helps uh, like disabled students excel, developing curriculum that helps BIPOC students excel and things like that. So it's really fantastic. And they took my idea. So initially I thought my idea would be a single year program. So basically like a spring semester and a like a, um, a fall semester and a spring semester program. And then they would graduate. Mm-hmm. And they kind of looked at all the things that they had to learn in order to make a video game. They're like, no, this needs to be a multi-year program. So now this is a program for 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. Um, Then, you know, each semester they focus on a couple of different um, topics, whether it's 3D modeling, animation, um, storyboarding, a lot of the research that goes into it, architecture, um, and the Unreal Development Engine and things like that. And so they're really able to take a more deep dive. So the program is much more robust. And it was also important for me for this not to be the regular work-study program where you just show up and do some work and go home. So I actually have like different metrics. I have learning goals and things that I actually want the students to um, be able to achieve um, with each class um, that they have. And what's the business model for that program? I mean, is that run through Serif 7 Studios? Are you selling this curriculum to schools? How, how does that work? 
So what I've decided to do was to set this up as a nonprofit. So of course my company is a for-profit and right now it's a um, Minnesota Public Benefits Corporation. Um, and then there'll be the nonprofit, which I still have yet to set up for the um, educational piece. And my goal is to make sure that the taxpayers don't have to pay for this program, but I wanna make sure the program's funded for at least 10 years. And my goal is once I release this first game um, that I'm able to put some money into the nonprofit so that it can be you know, pretty stable, mm-hmm. you know, and have um, some teachers and have a director and things like that, but not have to worry about um, running out of funds. And w- can I ask, what are you living on in the meantime until the game comes out and becomes <laughs> a big smashing success? Well, I mean, I've been just so extremely fortunate at the end of uh, 2020, I guess the start of 2021. So I do still work uh, for the courts two days a week. And I help uh, judges in Dakota County with some complex kind of family and civil cases. Mm. Uh, but I also, uh, American Express and iFund Women were so kind enough. They have this program called 100 for 100. So I was chosen as one of 100 or 99 other um, Black women founders and entrepreneurs that American Express and iFund Women gave us each $25,000 hmm. uh, to put into our company to use for living expenses as we're developing and working on our, our products. And they're also giving us 100 days of resources, uh, which has been amazing. So right now we're on kind of track two of our curriculum. And that's just been fantastic. And we get mentorship um, and just, just really cool access to people in different programs. And so it's been really fantastic. It's great to see how all of these programs and resources can really make such a huge difference when you're just starting yeah. out. Absolutely. Is it, on the other side, is it is it... Does it create pressure for you at this stage of the game? You know, everybody's already decided that you're a success. We put you on the cover of a magazine. I mean, you've got these great ideas. You're you're doing all these things, but you're still it's still early. Do you feel pressure, especially as you're as you, you know, win awards and get into incubator programs and get grant money? I don't feel pressure. I just feel more fire like that positive fire to just keep moving forward and to keep, you know, because when, when I really think about it, I look at some of my heroes and cheeros uh, from the past. So people like Thurgood Marshall, Bessie Coleman, Madam C.J. Walker, Coretta Scott King, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, folks like that, Alice Walker. And I just realized how they did so much more than even what I'm doing with so much less. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't have the luxury of having grants or having people reach out to them. They had to work hard for every little thing they had. And right. they were able to accomplish legendary things. Yeah. So if they can do it. I can do it. I just got to. <laughs> Keep moving forward. Stay optimistic. You know, keep working hard. For sure. Um, and I think there was a really cool quote by Oprah where she says, "Don't focus on being successful. Focus on being substantial, and the success will come." Mm. That you know, Oprah, so. she's got all the good quotes, doesn't she? See, and Oprah <laughs> and I have the same birthday, so that's how I know I'm destined for something amazing. There you go. Um, yep. What will? What to you will be the greatest sign of success? for the for the business once you get the game out what will be the greatest the greatest sign for success will really just be um the impact on the students and the impact on the community um so really seeing students that come through my steam programs excelling um in their careers excelling in, in college work um that will really make me extremely happy and then especially you know if they decide to to come back and, and share with me, you know, what they've been doing, that'd be great. And speaking to students uh, who are still in the program. So if this program really becomes a thing um, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, that the Sarah Foundation program is just like the thing to do, that will be a huge success. And having people kind of know that Minnesota is the place to get your STEM talent. What would it have meant to you as a kid playing on the PlayStation uh, to have a game like the one that you're building right now with with black heroes and older heroes and women. And... It would have been just absolutely amazing. You know, like I keep I keep thinking back to I don't know if you remember the doll test back in the day, like in the 1940s. And they repeated it in like 2015. Mm-hmm. And it was a test where they gave kids dolls, a black doll and a white doll. And they would say, which doll is the smart doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? Mm. Which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Mm-hmm. And whenever they when they asked about, and these were like 10-year-old kids. So when they said, who's the bad doll? Who's the ugly doll? Uh, who's the, you know, dumb doll? They would point to the black doll. 
when they say who's the smart, who's the pretty, and who's the good doll, they point to the white doll, mm -hmm. right? And of course, 1940s, right? So we're just like, okay, well, we expect that from the 40s, perhaps. But they repeated the test in 2015 with kids of all races and not just black kids mm -hmm. to the same results. And so it shows that what we're putting out there, right, is, is impacting our kids in a way where their self-esteem is being hurt. So like in the 2015 one, they asked the student, they asked these kids, which doll do you look like? And there were kids who like were in tears because they realized they just said all these negative things about this black doll, but they resemble the black doll. Yeah. Um, and it's just, and I mean, that, that's one of the biggest things that I want to change. Not only do I want to improve that self-esteem of black kids and black students and get them with that mindset of, I can achieve anything. Kind of just what I said, man, these people did it in the past. They did it with much less. I can do it too. You know, I want these kids to feel, you know, my black skin, it doesn't mean I'm bad, right? I'm good, right? I'm going to kind of change those associations that they're making, but also for white kids um, and Hispanic kids to also change those associations uh, when it comes to how dark or how light your skin is, that right. that doesn't matter when it comes to your character and, and just changing those messages that we as a society are putting out there to our children um, right. is really important. Being more intentional about that. Well, and when you see the numbers of how many hours kids are spending playing video games, especially this yes. past year, and then and the the amount of money, yeah, and, yeah the amount of money in what is it like a what what what's the stat in the video gaming industry? It's about one hundred sixty four billion dollar industry. Right, it's huge. It's bigger than TV. It's bigger than sports, and it's bigger than films worldwide. Yeah, that is insane. A lot of opportunity <laughs> there, and you my friend, are changing the world. So There's a lot of untapped opportunity. Yeah, yeah, there is. Well, we can't wait for the game to come out. I can't wait to play it. And I, uh, and I can't wait to see all of the students who come out of your program. What amazing things you're doing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to Twin Cities Business. You guys are fantastic. Oh, well, we're, we're thrilled to have you on the cover. I'm guessing we're probably going to have to have you back again. But I'm, I'm thinking you ought to mention that when you're talking to the folks at, you know, PlayStation and, and Xbox. You just tell them you're on the cover of Twin Cities Business. They sh that should shoot you right up to the top of the list. Right. Hey, I already told Visa. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. I hope it helps. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> Jules Porter, thanks so much for joining us today. You're, you have an amazing story. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I told you you'd be inspired by Jewel's story. For some more perspective on taking unique approaches to solving really big problems, let's go back to the classroom. Anne-Marie Thomas is a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business. She's also the director of the Playful Learning Lab. And so STEAM programs and programs for, for youth are near and dear to her heart. Tell us a little bit about that, Anne-Marie. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm so inspired by the work that Jules is doing because we know and there's a body of work that really shows us that kids kids are engage differently in their learning when they're having fun and they're playing and they're seeing people that look like them and they're, they're being creative. And so to see someone like Jules who is pulling in so many different fields and really literally changing the face of gaming and video games, especially in these COVID times when kids are spending a lot of time on their screens, mm -hmm. uh, it's really exciting to see this, this innovative new work that's coming out. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, you might think, oh, well, gosh, I mean, go go, go do the lawyer thing and you can make big changes. But I mean, video games are so impactful, especially when you're talking about teaching a new, a new generation in a different way. Exactly. And being able to see stories and people that are near and dear to youth and, and older gamers who aren't used to seeing themselves on those screens. Right. We really do absorb those images and those things that we're seeing while playing. We do. Yeah. Um, the, the other interesting thing is that I thought might resonate with you being at the University of St. Thomas, the way when Jules sort of had this epiphany, there she was in law school and she just moseyed on over to the business school <laughs> and was able to do both at the same time. I don't know how common that is, but, but I mean, d does that happen very often with entrepreneurial people? Yes, very much so. And I mean, this is one of the joys of being at a liberal arts university is that you have experts from all these different disciplines. So I had a smile when Jules talks about being on a study abroad trip and coming up with this idea when she was in, you know, in a church and she could then pull in what she learned from the business classes. And you know, and that really is the secret to new ideas is that 
they don't come from just your business classes. They come from all the other aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. And so a student like Jules, she can learn the entrepreneurship and she can learn to build a company, but she's pulling in these ideas from her lived experience in the classes she's getting in the law school and her study abroad trip to Italy and the games that she played, um, you know, through a, a life as a gamer. And I think that's important um, because the new ideas really are coming from the things that you do outside of maybe your law class or your right. entrepreneurship class. Right. Um, and so she has seamlessly shown how all of these things can, can really combine into an exciting new idea. So I guess the big takeaway, I mean, of course, the classes are important, but, but recognize that ideas are everywhere, not just in the classroom. Exactly, that ideas are everywhere and, you know, put yourself in these situations and seek out these situations like she does for lifelong learning and taking, taking different types of classes and talking to different types of people and to teachers. Um, you know, Jules is really living that mission that she talks about so passionately and bringing, boy, one heck of a toolbox uh, with all of her training to, to bring that idea to fruition. Right. I love it. I can't wait to play the game. How about you? I am looking forward to it. <laughs> Anne-Marie Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple. It really helps. And of course, you can learn more about all the episodes of By All Means by going to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks again for listening. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.